Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Matt Friedman, hi. Hello. You are the founder of Two Birds, One Bee. What is that? Excellent question. Two Birds, One Bee is, I suppose, my attempt to rectify... Um, a huge gap in the way we talk about sex and relationships to young people. It is a sex and relationships education business that I started in 2016, the year after graduating high school. It uh, is a for youth, by youth, um, youth-centred way at, at addressing topics that are outside of the school curriculum, but I see very much as parallel to it, achieving the same aims. Uh, the idea is to address not just young people, but also their parents, um, schools, institutions that work with young people, anyone who will listen to me speak. Okay, so you, st- you mentioned school curriculums. Mm-hmm. What, what are kids in Australian schools currently learning in the school curriculum for sex ed? It's, it's a really good question because what's in the curriculum is also not necessarily what they're getting. There's okay. The school curriculum for primary age students is largely around puberty, um, for which is fantastic. Um, that's really important to, to learn. I, there are some qualms I have with it in that it's not sort of explicit enough. And so you'll have young people, you know, curious about puberty who are then going on the internet. And I'm sure we'll get onto that later, but that obviously leads in a direction where uh, it is no longer controlled by people who maybe have their best interests at heart. Right. So in primary school, it's, it's puberty focused. Uh, in high school, Year seven, um, year eight is when they start learning about sexually transmitted infections and pregnancies and all the reasons you shouldn't be having sex. Uh, Year nine and year 10 is when they start learning about safety in terms of contraception. Um, There there are other things in there. There's there's a whole section of the curriculum within PDHPE, which is about um, relationships and and consent. Um, There's not a huge focus on it. It's sort of put with the same focus as drug taking or driving sort of risks that young people come across. Um, so there is, um, there is the curriculum aspect of things, mm-hmm. but it is also the only curriculum in which the schools are given a great deal of flexibility in terms of what they teach. So in maths, it would be weird for you know, the, the schools to have the ability to miss excerpts or to delay excerpts by up to two years. Um, whereas within PDHB, the schools are given a large amount of leeway, um, which is, you know, appropriate in terms because it is culturally sensitive topics we're talking about here. But it does mean that a lot of schools just will not teach a lot of what's in the curriculum. So from my own experience, I went to a school that was um, fairly progressive, but the teachers were, I, I suppose, embarrassed or for some reason there just wasn't an emphasis in the school. So we did not get any conversations about protection. We had... I think one lesson about sexually transmitted infections, um, one conversation about consent, and that was kind of ticked the box. And then, and then we we were sort of left in the dark and, and left to our own sort of tools and curiosity to figure out the rest for ourselves. And it, and as far as you can tell now, you've you've worked with a lot of schools. Is that is that more of the exception or more of the rule? That's more of the rule. Um, there is a. It's, there's a culture within schools to do the bare minimum, um, partly because no one is telling them not to. There is no force within schools sort of really complaining that the curriculum is not being taught. 
if, if, it was, if they were missing science, I'm sure you'd have students and parents sort of clamoring at the gates, being like, why aren't we taught about you know, these areas of science or talking about maths, whatever it is. But, but because these areas are often very taboo, there aren't many parents or students sort of saying, you know, why aren't you telling my kids about condoms? Why is this conversation not happening? So there's, there's the aspect of embarrassment from the teacher's end. There's the aspect of embarrassment from everyone else's end. Uh, it means that largely it's not being taught. Um, and when it is being taught, um, uh, often it's sort of de-emphasized, sort of tucked away, done in a week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sometimes externalized. I know a lot of public schools in New South Wales go to, um, there's a day, the name of which escapes me, but it's an external, pro- um, external program. Um, where they do it all within one day so that the teachers don't have to worry about it. Um, and then I suppose there are a few sort of private people like myself who are trying to um, help teachers have these conversations or start these conversations at the very least. Um, hopefully not in like a one-off kind of way, but in a way that sort of starts the ball rolling and right. makes it easier to talk about. What, what, what was, um, like let's say you, you come to a new school, mm. you mentioned that some other people like to do it one-off, knock it all out in a day. What's your ideal? You come to a school, how many times are you there? So ideally, I would love to come to a school, firstly speak to the school itself, mm-hmm. speak to the teachers, the staff, um, talk about what kind of strategy the school can really do that's much more holistic than just um, one-off things. Um, that doesn't always happen, but when it does, I think it gets the teachers really on board because um, what I find is that there are teachers in a lot of other subjects that can do a lot of good. Um, so in English, for example, you can talk, you, the texts that you choose to study in English often have the same messages implicitly reflected, for example, in pornography, um, which is a topic that I talk about a lot um, in terms of I did an analysis of what te- te- English texts I was taught in school. Okay. And I think about 80 something percent of them had male protagonists. Um, okay. Something like 95% of them had male authors. Um, it was very much a, we were we taught as English students that the voices that are most important are male voices talking about male stories, which is the same things you hear, for example, in pornography. So whilst it might be good to talk about pornography in PDHB or talk about it elsewhere, it's also important to have those same messages reflected across the school board. Um, so, so you, there's a correspondence for you between the way... So, so like, let, let, let me like back up a bit here. Hmm. In, in terms of just... Because, like, it seems like there are a lot of books that have... that aren't very... Um, that have protagonists that aren't necessarily, like, pinnacles of virtue. Mm, but what you're sure. saying is, is it's, it's one level deeper than that. It's, it's so long as what, what would you say? It's, there's the protagonists of, of tales are mainly male. The, the message that kids are getting is that males called the shots and that's what harmful to conversations about consent. It establishes a norm mm-hmm. in which pornography exists. So if, if we lived in a culture in which if we lived in, in, in a truly egalitarian society mm-hmm. in which women were, were sort of seen as, you know, by default, as equal unquestionably to men, then pornography would stand out like a sore thumb. Young people would access this content and be like, wow, this is a bit weird. I've never sort of seen these gender relations before. We do not live in that culture. So when most young people come to pornography, it is not introducing new ideas necessarily. It's reinforcing ideas that are pervasive throughout throughout society still. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've come a long way, 
we've come a very long way. Advertising is less explicitly, less explicitly sexist than it was in the 50s, for example. But advertising is still, I mean, increasingly pornographic in a way. You know, it is using women's bodies to sell things. Right. It's not that big a leap to go from women's bodies being used to sell things to, you know, women's bodies are being used for sex and nothing else. Um, so it, it, the messages within pornography and the issues within porn um, are most extreme in pornography, but they are by no means sort of unique to pornography. They exist across media and across sort of the way we deal with, with um, relationships in society. That's really interesting. So would you, uh, would you expect a society like, I don't know, Scandinavia to have less brutal porn? I, it's a good question. I, I look, I haven't, I don't know any of the statistics around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it may not be quite as simple as that either. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I mean, there's a strong argument that pornography is fantasy. A lot of people who are pro-porn, um, their defense is that porn is fantasy and that people um, should be able to access it because people can distinguish between fantasy and reality. Um, I think that argument makes sense for some people, people who sort of have a pre-existing sexuality and then sort of access porn as a way of, of um, accessing fantasy. Um, that argument falls down a little bit when young people are being educated by porn and that's sort of the norm. Um, but that aside, you have, um, you have some people arguing that sort of porn is fantasy and so, you know, it may well be that there's a lot of very violent pornography, even in sort of Scandinavia, which we hold up as a very egalitarian society. But when it comes to, I mean, I can say, you know, when it comes to nudity, for mm-hmm. example, um, one of the strong themes that, that come out of porn, which is not addressed at all, or mm-hmm. nearly as much as it should be, is body image um, issues, which we talk about body image in terms of advertising. And, you know, in school, I remember talking about body image a little bit, um, but not in terms of very intimate sort of genital body image. Um, and... I think here is, is where you might sort of more concretely see a difference between Australia and Scandinavia or, you know, Europe, because uh, Europe just tends to have much more relaxed views about nudity. Nudist, col- like nudist beaches are sort of much more prevalent. Um, there's a lot more sort of nude art and uh, nudity is sort of seen as separate from sexuality. Whereas in Australia, we've inherited a much more sort of British American thing where, where nudity is, you know, scandalous and it's only associated with sexuality. Mm-hmm. So there's, we have less sources of messages around nudity in Australia than, say, in, in Scandinavia, um, which means that pornography takes up a much greater um, presence within that messaging. So the fastest increasing um, plastic surgery in Australia is labiaplasty. It's, it's surgery, plastic surgery of your vagina to get what's sort of termed the Barbie vagina look. Um, which is, yeah, I mean, you know, labia look very different for very, you know, for women, it's an incredibly diverse, you know, set of genitals. Um, but in pornography, it's a very sort of, there's, you, there's one message that Australian young women are getting about vaginas um, from pornography. Whereas in Scandinavia, I mean, I don't know the stats there, but I imagine it's, it, there's much more diversity. And so you might not have the same inclination to, um, to like change your body to, to fit what you perceive as the norm. Right. So, so how are uh, young people first coming to pornography? What, what does the average story look like? 
Sure. So the average story is very young to start with. Mm-hmm. The, it's hard to do studies in this area. Um, in Australia, the, the study that most people cite um, is that the average age of first accessing pornography is 11 years old. I have seen a study which suggests it's as, not, as young as nine years old, um, which makes sense given that technology is, I mean, you, know, you have 10 year olds with iPhones in their pockets and you have four year olds accessing iPads mm-hmm. or tablets. Um, so for a lot of young people, I think for the majority of, of young people, um, at least the ones that I've spoken to, the story is about curiosity. You've got, um, I mean, as a young person sort of in, in a society in which sex is very exciting, but sort of restricted, you know, you can't see MA movie or M movies. You can't watch certain videos. You can't do all these things, but you know that sex is very exciting. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the underpinning uh, motivation for, or seemingly the underpinning motivation for so much. Um, And, and, you know, um, it's everywhere. Sex is everywhere, except there's no images of sex that young people can access. So naturally, a lot of young people start go to the internet to fulfill that curiosity gap. Um, so, you, so a young person might sort of add, start by Googling what breasts look like or penises look like or vaginas look like. Um, and then, you know, it's very exciting. It's very taboo. There's, there's so much information out there and they might then wonder what sex looks like. And so they might Google what that is and, and pornography corporations of the multi-billion dollar industry um, very clever in terms of what search results um, show up in Google clever um, so if if um, I saw a presentation I can't think of any examples right now but there were a couple of common mistypes like common things that you might type incorrectly mm-hmm. and then porn companies will specifically target those things to then have a video pop up um, which takes a young person onto that site um, to start that kind of relationship between young person, the young person and, and accessing pornography online. So like specifically like uh, typos, like errors in typing? Uh, yeah, errors in typos or just things that young people might just type in terms of like, what does sex look like? Yeah, you know, it might be, you know, like a curious question and uh, very innocently put, you know, what, do, what is sex? What does sex look like? Um, so when you when you go into classrooms, mm. when you're in a school first, you say the first thing you want to do is you want to talk to the teachers and figure out some kind of grand strategy, something yeah. you can do together. And then what happens next is you get into the classrooms. Uh, even before that, I'd love to, uh, the, sp- the parents are a really important player mm-hmm. who um, can be, I mean, they can, at worst, they can be a barrier. They can be a boundary. There's a lot of parents who are, who are just terrified of, of talking about sex with their children. And um, there's a strong school of thought that it is inappropriate to talk to young people about sex at such a young age. Um, and, and there's a lot of elements that are, that are very true. There's, you know, the young people, um, particularly prepubescent, but even in early puberty, don't really understand what sort of sex, um, sex is. Um, it's very exciting, but there's, there's very little information around it. Mm-hmm. So you have to be kind of careful with what you say to young people so they don't sort of try what they hear and, and, um, and, and sort of get the wrong ideas. How do, you, how do you stop them from trying what they hear? Um, well, my, I very strongly believe that young people are more intelligent and more thoughtful than society gives them credit for. Okay. Um, I, it's, it's amazing how much we underestimate young people. 
um, when equipped with the right information. So at the moment, the alternative to no information from schools and parents is the internet. So whilst previously it might have worked to not talk about sex until someone was sort of much older, mm. that strategy no longer is an option because they will get information. It's just information coming from internet sources, which you know studies are showing is increasingly where, where, where most young people are getting the information from. It's a lot easier to have a quick Google than to and or have an awkward conversation with your mom or your older sibling. So do you find that parents in general are like, what would you say, receptive to that sort of argument? Do they, do they hear, oh, well, I guess someone has to have this chat and I'm not going to and the teachers aren't going to. <laughs> or are they more fingers in the ears? Um, surprisingly, I thought there would be more opposition. I have not yet had a parent come up to me after a presentation and say that they still disagreed by the end of the presentation. Really? Yeah. Um, maybe they're too shy. Okay. Um, maybe, you know, maybe I don't come across as inviting of criticism, but no, most, the, I mean, the, all the parents I've spoken to um, seem to be shocked, firstly. Um, I mean, it's one thing to be like, oh, pornography is something children watch. Another thing to say, pornography is something that my child has probably watched. Right. Is that's another leap. Um, you, could you give us like the, the short version of, of this presentation? Sure. So it starts with, um, firstly, sort of bringing home that pornography is a relevant topic to talk about. So a few stats around, you know, how many young people have watched, why young people watch. Um, so just to give um, a few stats here, uh, there was a 2006 study done, which is sadly the most recent study in Australia. Um, it's Again, it's very difficult to, to survey young people about their pornography watching habits. Right. But it's from 2006, right. which was, what, now 12 years ago. Um they found, the researchers found that 60, I think it was 64% of young women by the age of 16 had, it was the survey sample was 13 to 16 year olds. Mm -hmm. So 60 something percent of young women had seen pornography, not necessarily watching it regularly, but had seen it. And 94% of young men. So that was 12 years ago. And as um, the old joke imagine. goes, the remaining 6% are liars. Right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, yeah, self-reporting, um, is obviously challenging when, when most young people... That, so this is a self-reported study and this, the figures were still like 94%. I, th um, I think... I, I read it a very long time ago. I think it was a self... I think it was partly self-reported at least. Uh, oh. It was a broader study in terms of internet usage, but there was a component around pornography. So I think it was a checkbox kind of, which of these things have you seen online? Right. So you'd, you'd, you'd sit down with some parents and you'd, you'd say, okay, first of all, it's relevant. Your child has seen porn... Let's yeah. move on to part two. And even if they haven't, their partners will have. And that's the norm. That's the cultural norm of, of, of my generation. This is, right. this is the norm in which we operate. Even if your child has not seen pornography, they have seen the same messages in a TV show, at a bus shelter, like an ad at a bus shelter, um, in movies, in music videos, um, and their friends will assume it's the norm. Right. And so this is an important conversation to have. It, it was interesting when you say my generation, I, it's, it seems to me like the... The, I think a lot of people have pointed this out, like the gap between a generation is now a lot smaller than it, it used is. to be. Yeah. So, I mean, what, it's the people, uh, you know, people, young people today, I, my, my younger sister, I have a single sister who's much younger than I, she doesn't remember what it was like to not have phones. You're right. Like, yeah. That's not, that's not a I'm part sure of the I'm sure my sister's the same. Yeah. yeah. So, so for these, so if you're, so your generation and more so the younger people, this is, this is the norm. Uh, so you tell the parents that 
Mm -hmm. Even if their child is like the one in a million young innocent, (laughs) their potential partners and their classmates and everyone else are not. Yeah. Okay. And then what's what's next? So next next is to talk about the culture of sex education in Australia. So we have in Australia broadly a very conservative culture, which I suppose we inherited from the British and the Americans where we inherit so much, um, in which we... It is diffi- it's worth pointing out that it is difficult to talk about these things because it is deemed culturally inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And then I compare that to Scandinavia um, and as in particular um, there are like programs that are run that I point out in particular in which it is far more explicit at a far younger age. Right. So Switzerland, I take as an example, um, they briefly, a bunch of parents complained at some point, so it no longer happens, but they had a program where for kindergarten kids they gave them plush toys of um, genitals, penis plush toy and a vagina plush toy to kindergarten kids. And I think that's brilliant because if you're introducing a body part as just this very normal sort of friendly thing, um, then you might not have people who A, Google it at a later point and then have, you know, go on the pornography route or B, feel like it's this terrible thing that they should be ashamed of or feel like it's something that looks terrible and, and you know, is not the norm and then they don't have plastic surgery around it. Mm. It's interesting you, you say this is a cultural norm thing. I had uh, uh, a couple of friends from South America and who were shown, um, I think at like the age of like two or three or four, like really young, mm. which is like their mother sat them down with like a picture book and was like, well, this is how everything works. Cool. Fantastic. So you're in favor of this, partly from the preemptive strike point of view and yeah. partly from the normalization point of view? Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a third aspect as well, which is normalizing the conversation. Uh-huh. So a lot of parents I speak to, um, I think they're concerned because they haven't had this conversation until their child is 16 or 17 years old. And that's very late in a relationship to sort of be like, oh, by the way, this conversation is fine to right. have. By that point, your, your teenager's already rolling eyes at you because, like, that, that's, you know. Oh, mum. Like, oh, that's so embarrassing. I mean, I remember my mum, bless her, she, she had a conversation with me. I must have been 14 years old about masturbation. <laughs> and she was sort of saying, you know, masturbation is fine and it's normal. And, and, and we have a very good relationship. Mm. Um, and I was mortified. <laughs> it was the most... It's the most traumatizing. Absolutely, it's the messages that I would recommend parents give. You know, mm. Parents should be saying that, that, that masturbation is, is normal. I think that's really important. Um, and, and side point to, to separate masturbation from pornography, because for this generation growing up with pornography, there is no distinction there. Right. Or, right. Sorry, there's very little distinction. Very little. Yeah. So I, I like introducing the point because a few, particularly young men, sort of, it's like, oh, I've never thought about it before. Where it's, you can masturbate without watching porn. Um, <laughs> masturbation, really healthy. Um, you know, has even been linked to decreasing cancer rates. Um, pornography, uh, I would argue, is less healthy. Okay. So, so sorry, just to, to, to come back to the original point, um, the culture around sex education in Australia is very conservative. There exists other alternatives. For example, South America um, and uh, Scandinavia, um, and I show them a video which um, is intended for year six students in Norway. It's a Norwegian video. Um, and they explicitly show, um, like, they show a real penis and they show a real vagina. And then they go further and they sort of have these two models and they 
they show explicitly what sex looks like using basically a dildo and uh, like a model vagina. Jeez, this um, is in year six. This is in year six. It's like dear Norwegian kids, if you haven't hit puberty yet, you're about to. And I think that's brilliant because we teach it with cartoons. We teach all these things with cartoons at best and words at worst. And the cartoons are like walking this thin line between, we kind of want to tell them the truth, but we're kind of embarrassed to be too explicit. So it's like layers of metaphor and allegory. Oh, oh my God. The use of, the use of, yeah. I mean, you have kids who sort of, you know, haven't said the word vagina until they're you know 17 or 18. And I think that's a real problem because how do you talk about consent? How do you talk about issues? If you can't say the words, you know, how, how can we have conversations around, you know, for example, if a young person's in a relationship, mm-hmm. how can they speak to their partner about what sexual acts they're comfortable with if they can't actually name their body parts? Right, right, um, right. So I, the use of metaphor is cute and sort of more comfortable for parents, but I think ultimately quite damaging if it's relied upon. Okay. So, all right. So I just, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to, to, do, to hear this chronology so you go and you right. say to parents dear parents your kid is probably watching porn and even if they're the angel all the classmates are watching porn mm-hmm. the way we do the conversation is insufficient mm-hmm. here's what i'm offering yeah so then um before i get so i sort of throughout i sort of talk about i'm uh, sorry at this stage um after talking about how cons- how sex education is very conservative in australia i then sort of say this is what i talk about in my presentations Mm-hmm. Um, and so I give them an outline of what their children are about to hear, hopefully within the next week. It's great to have the parent talk sort of within the same week as the children's talk. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, it surprises a lot of parents and students. But what does happen is that there is a conversation that opens up between the two of them after this week, um, in which for the first time, parents. So who is that student- Matt guy? Yeah. Gee. <laughs> but, well, I mean, that's what. But the first presentation I ever gave, um, um, I got an email. I was to parents, and then I got an email afterwards from, from one of the moms saying, I just had a chat with my son and his friend in the car on the way to school this morning, um, and it was about pornography, and it was really interesting and really, like, it's surprisingly easy, and I just wanted to thank you for your presentation. And after that, I thought, you know, geez, this is, this is, this is very... Um, that alone is worth it. That's worth it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I hear it. Yeah, so speak to parents about what the content of the talk to students is. Very mm-hmm. transparent. Um, and then after that, I'd like to, as much as possible, give some practical tips to parents as to what kind of conversations they could have with their, stu- with their, with their children. Um, starting with the fact that the talk with a capital T, you know, the one-off talk about how sex works, um, is um, very outdated. High-pressure uh, strategy. Formal... Um, uncomfortable, um, no one enjoys it. It is um, high pressure, as you say. Mm. Um, whereas, and also it means that questions have to be restricted to that time, otherwise then they're not welcome. Mm-hmm. So the talk should be talks, conversations, like any other kind of conversation. All right, so this, this is interesting. Uh, what, for any parents listening to this, what are, what are some tips they can use? For sure, so the first one is opening up the space for those conversations. Um, a lot of parents are the first reaction will be to shut down in things that are inappropriate in quotation marks. So not letting your child watch Game of Thrones or, you know, finding them listening to sort of music which has certain lyrics in it and then turning that off straight away. Not letting a kid watch Game of Thrones is a crime against them. <laughs> it's terrible. 
<laughs> okay, so so the first thing is when people when parents are doing that, what what are what are they saying to their kids? So what they're implicitly saying is um, find a sneaky way of doing it um, uh, because I don't want to hear I don't I don't want you doing it and I don't want you talking to me about any of that kind of content because it is inappropriate to have that conversation. Oh, that's um, interesting. So there's the, so there's no such thing as a real no. It's only a you better do this deceitfully because I won't I won't brook this. Um, um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm sure for some, I'm, look, I'm sure for a lot of young people, um, there is, there is, you know, the young people tend to have relationships with their parents such that they trust them to some extent. Right. It's difficult when all your friends are doing it. Um, so one parent on their own against a tide of youth cultures is difficult. Um, I'm sure some parents saying to their child, this is inappropriate, will stop their child from temporarily watching or listening to whatever they're watching or listening to. Um, for most, for most students or for most children that will just, um, close the conversation between the parent and the student rather than between, rather than between the child and the content. Right. Right. So most, okay. So for most, most kids hearing that sort of message is, it means I can't talk to mom and dad about this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so... My recommendation for parents is instead of telling your child to stop watching Game of Thrones is to sit down and watch it with them. Um, Thereby making it so awkward that they never want to watch it again. <laughs> I, I mean, like partly. It. Ah, good strategy. <laughs> um, and if that doesn't work, at least your child might be like, hey, this, this makes me uncomfortable. Like, like mom, I, I feel uncomfortable with this scene in which, you know, there's some graphic scenes in Game of Thrones um, in which you know, particularly relationships are really messed up and the sex is not oh, essential. Yeah. Um, and, and those are conversation starters. Those, those are options for parents and, and their kids to have a conversation around those things, which is really important, I think. Um, are you, for example, you know, a toned down version of that is you're listening to the radio in the car on the way to school and you hear some R&B lyrics or some hip hop lyrics about those hoes and smacking them and... Um, and it's an opportunity for someone to be like, what do you think about that language? What, you know, do, do you feel comfortable with that? Would you, do you talk about it, young women like that? Like how, how does, you know, to open that conversation with the young person and, and always with an open-ended question. Um, hmm. Sort of saying that's bad is, is the end of the conversation, not the start. Right, point. saying that's bad is the end of the conversation, not the start. Hmm. All right, cool. Any, any more uh, tips that you tend to throw out in these meetings? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the big one and, and the hardest one is, is in terms of what kind of modeling behavior the parent gives. Yeah. Um, so that's really difficult for a lot of parents because it, it firstly, it's you know, behavior that you've been doing for your whole life. And secondly, it's the behavior you've learned from your own parents um, and the parents before them. These, these messages get passed on and on and on. Um, but for example, you know, parents who walk around the house naked are modeling a comfortability with their body that will hopefully get passed on to their child. If a parent doesn't sort of let anyone see them naked, then the child might think, ah, nudity is, is bad. Nudity is naughty. I should be embarrassed about my body. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I recommend having nude art in the house, for example. It's just one easy way of saying that body is a beautiful thing that doesn't have to be associated with sex. The body can exist in and of itself. You can own it. You can be proud of it. Um, you don't have to be ashamed or change it for the purposes of sex and the purposes of a partner. Okay. Um, 
but modeling in terms of, you know, how do you talk about women's sport? How do you talk about um, um, consent? You know, the, a parent might crack a few jokes um, or anyone might crack a few jokes. A family friend might crack a joke at dinner, um, which is a bit on edge. And if a parent at that point is able to be like, hey, you know, that's a bit outdated, don't you think? Um, that sets up an example for a child to then follow when they're at a party and a friend of theirs, you know, is doing something that's a little on edge. Mm-hmm. Um, they know that, oh, actually, no, this behavior I've seen before, and I can, I can actually do this. Like the inability to, to say, this is a limit for me, in, in some sense. Yeah, yeah, and, to, and there are ways of doing that. You know, there are definitely more confrontational ways of doing that, and, and there's a big debate about, you know, in what ways can bystanders step into situations. Okay. But, but for sure, modeling that kind of behavior, I think, is really important. Okay, so you have these hard conversations with the parents. Mm-hmm. Now, this is what I'm fascinated. You get into the classroom yeah. with a brand new set of kids you've never met. Uh-huh. What are the first five minutes like? The first five minutes um, are a lot of fun. Really? A lot of fun. So it is a difficult conversation to have. And the, again, going back to the language of the conversations... Um, I start off with an exercise in terms of the, I've got a PowerPoint and, and I introduce the activity where a word will pop up on the screen and we're all going to say it together. We're all just going to get comfortable with this. Wow. So, so the you first just word is, Yeah. So the first, so the first word that pops on the screen is, is, I don't know, penis. And then we all the classroom says together penis. And if they don't say it loud enough, we repeat it. Make sure everyone is confident with I've the language. I've played that game as a kid. It's a penis game, right? <laughs> penis game. Yeah. But this time it's in, it's, you know, you, it's funny how, we, how, how, I mean, young men in particular are comfortable saying penis around each other and drawing pictures of penises. But no one can draw a picture of a vagina. Right? Well, that, that's partly because they're far more difficult to get right. Um, I mean, look, penis diagrams aren't exactly accurate either. Um, so... But you know we we need to talk about vaginas, yeah. Um, so we should we should be able to say the word loudly, confidently, um, and so yeah. Go the first five minutes are a lot of fun, where it's about relaxing the space, um, making sure that that everyone's get that gets their laughs out so that they gets can the giggles out. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Wow. Okay, so there's a slideshow, penis, vagina, the whole litany. everything, yeah. And then, uh, do do you ever like throw in like a few just like bizarre like, <laughs> accountant giraffe like what <laughs> i uh i do in one of my presentations i've got a um just words that sound naughty but actually aren't mm-hmm. um so i think like fung limbus is a is a type of a type of plant say it um, again fung limbus fun fung limbus fung limbus i think okay i can't i can't exactly remember and then at some point i make up a word and throw it in and everyone's sort of giggling and confused as to what's going on oh, uh, but it's, it's a fun space right yeah. okay it's, it's very, um, like, drop them into this chaotic festival mode yep. so that you can start having new conversations without... Break all the rules. Right. Break all the rules. Yeah. I, and when you're there with these, these kids, is there, is there a teacher present at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. Is um, the teacher, like, cowering behind the <laughs> usually at this point? Um, most, teachers, uh, most teachers will sit at the back of the room and try not to... Uh, appear interested or die of um, embarrassment or die of embarrassment they're very contently probably pretending to mark a paper do you find the kids often at, towards i imagine just towards the beginning of the exercise like glancing back at the teacher does that happen or not so much i'm uh, not so much i mean okay. I, think, I think you know students are used to 
teachers being around all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that there's this new authority figure in the room who's allowing them to say this, it, I think it's it's not too... I think they're often more embarrassed to say it in front of their peers rather than teachers. Okay. Um, most peer pressure comes from... Most pressure in schools comes from peers rather than teachers. And that And that you find is generally like lifted quite quickly through these exercises? I mean, uh, in as far as a simple exercise like that can go, for sure. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, at the beginning, there is definitely more nerves and, and it becomes more of a, it becomes a bigger, more flexible conversation that's more comfortable as we go later on. And for a lot of people, they won't, you know, a lot of kids just won't open their mouths at all during the presentation. Really? Um, it's just, it clearly it's a conversation they've never had before. It's a conversation they've been taught is, is totally inappropriate. It's a conversation they're not comfortable having. And that's fine. Like, I'm not going to force anything. You let them just yeah, absolutely. write it out. Um, they, like, they're listening. I mean, mm-hmm. in, I mean, some kids pretend they aren't listening. Um, you know, they'll act up or it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. So people will, will do all sorts of things. Um, but How do you deal with it when they act up? Um, I love it. Um, I, I really love it because it's often an opportunity. Um, I'm thinking now of a class clown who sort of tries to test the boundaries. Um, so they'll, they'll prove that they're, you know, they're, they're trying, to, trying to test my boundaries in terms of how far this conversation can go. So they'll ask questions that seem totally inappropriate. And I accept it and I sort of I take it back and sort of think, wow, it's interesting that, you know, it's interesting that that's something that, you know, we, that's on our minds. Like why... Let's talk about that. Let's absolutely talk about that. Um, and so it's very, it's a great springboard into deeper conversations and sort of proving the point that these conversations are important to have um, and that they can't be, they can't be sort of torpedoed by a, by a quote unquote inappropriate question. Hmm. And then what, what do you find? So that's, that's, that would be what, what you would call the first session. Hmm. Would you, in an ideal setting, how many times are you coming back to the same school? At the moment, um, I have sort of one-off workshops. Mm-hmm. So there's the, my workshop on pornography, which is by far the more popular one. Um, I've got another workshop on gender and sexuality, which is talking about what is gender, what is sexuality. You know, wow, there's a very confusing world out there. There's a lot of political correctness that people are terrified of, quite frankly. Um, a lot of people don't understand what's going on. So it's just this beginner's course to gender and sexuality. Um, turns out that one, I thought that would be the less controversial one. I thought pornography would be much more controversial. Um, but parents have written it in being like, I don't want my child learning about sort of gender and sexuality. That's, that's something that, that I don't think my child should hear about. And that's unexpected. I thought, I mean, look, maybe my progressive bubble was, right. but, um, but no, no, parent, yeah, yeah, that's, that's caused a, a bigger, a bigger fuss. I mean, you know, it's linked to the political debates around the safe schools, that have been happening across Australia. This what, safe, what safe schools, schools? Um, safe schools was a pro or is a program um, around gender and sexuality diversity, um, which started in Victoria, um, became a national program for about, I think, like a year or two years, and then there was this massive conservative backlash against it, where they thought, you know, the preaching homosexuality and and um, and so it was it was shut down. The the I think it was the, the Abbott government shut it down. Um, but still exists in Victoria. What was the program? What is the program? So the program is talking about um, gender. And it's very similar to the one I teach. Re- ah, some aspects of it are very similar to the one I teach. Um, I mean, it's it's a whole set of programs. So it's it's a bunch of policies for schools to adapt and 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 then also educational content. Um, and it talks about how um, you know gender is complicated. So gender is a cultural thing 
Um, mm. Sex is biological. Sex is much more simple. Um, it's biological, it's chromosomes, it's, it's genitalia. Although even within that, um, it's a lot it's a lot more complex than most people assume. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I was taught in school that you have either XY chromosomes or XX chromosomes. But in fact, you it, can have XXXY chromosomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's far more complicated. Yeah. Um, so, um, so sex is, I mean, I think something like 1.7% of the population is intersex. What? Which, which according to the Australian Human Rights Commission. 1.7%? 1.7. I mean, intersex is a over 30 different sort of distinct conditions, um, which are some ambiguity of sex. So a lot of people don't realize they're intersex, for example, until they hit puberty, in which suddenly, you know, it's a young guy who very much presents as a guy, and then suddenly in puberty, their estrogen levels get boosted, you know, a lot higher than than might otherwise be in young men. Um, So so a lot of people sort of might go a long time without sort of realizing it, or it might be like, oh, that woman is particularly tall and strong, but, you know, um, whereas there might be some interesting um, intersex condition um, going on internally. Jeez. So, so yeah, sex is complicated. Gender is by far more complicated, I think. Um, it's the way we sit. It's the way we talk. It's the way some people get a job application where some people don't. Um, it's the way, you know, if, if two individuals do something, for example, sleep with someone, if two individuals have sex, they will be treated very differently depending on their gender. Right. Um, and so um, in safe schools, I mean, what I talk about, we talk about, we just, we, it's sort of an introduction to that. Okay. It's sort of, it's, I mean, I see it as cri- teaching people to critically think about gender. Um, and in my workshops, I like talking about gender in other cultures. Um, so you have cultures around the world who have for thousands of years, or for hundreds of years, had third genders um, in which this binary of gender is not taken as a given. There is sort of this, this space for a third gender. Third gender. Yeah. So, um, for example, in um, indigenous, so Native American cultures, um, there is a, um, it's called two-spirit. Um, I don't know a lot about it, but there's sort of this, this societal role um, in sort of South Asia, um, India, Sri Lanka, um, one particular sort of form of the third gender is called the hijra. Um, in Pacific Island nations, um, for example, in um, Samoa, the other Fafafane. Um, Fafafane. What, what, what are these? I, I'm hearing words. What do they mean? What do they mean? What well, different Fafafane? things across different cultures. Okay. In the Fafafane, um, I'm no sort of cultural um, specialist, so um, um, I won't go too in depth. But sure. as, as, as my basic understanding is that it's often um, um, young. Uh, what what you might sort of think of as, as young boys, so young people with the sex characteristics of a male, mm-hmm. um, who um, for, often from a very early age take on many of the cultural uh, roles of women, but mm-hmm. they're not considered culturally women. It's not, it's not sort of a transgender child. It is a culturally understood as a third option for these people to inhabit within society. And so they have their own cultural norms, they have their own cultural roles, um, that are not the cultural roles and norms of men and not the cultural roles and norms of women. Wow. So really weird for a Westerner to think about mm-hmm. because there is very little, there's no option for that. Um, in Westerners, you have, you have men and you have women. Um, and so, I mean, in the last 50 years, there's much more trans rights movements have has taken off. So men can now identify as women and women can identify as men. And that's, you know, that's, that's growing movement. Um, but then even more complex is what about people who don't 
want either or don't identify as either of those cultural roles. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a whole other conversation. Um, but starting that conversation for young people, um, I think of as important not, I mean, a smaller part because there are a number of, I mean, the trans community in Australia is larger than the Jewish community. Really? Um, yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge percent of the population, um, which, you know, I think it's important that we, we talk about them. Um, but also because gender can be what really we, what messed are we up. What percentage-wise? Um, I don't know the exact stats from that. Okay. Um, I know in the US, I think it's something like 300,000 people so who identify as so trans. trans. That's 0.1%. One so. in a thousand. I'll have to, I'll, okay. I, I, yeah, I'll have to double check that one. Um, but it's, it's a huge minority. It's a huge minority and, and particularly around younger people who are, who are growing up in a world in which it is more okay to, to identify as such. Right. Um, so I think that population as a percentage will grow as people become more comfortable. Um, it's not entirely bizarre for, for you to sort of, you know, express the gender that you feel yourself to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, on the one hand, really important to talk about that. Um, but on the other hand, gender is really interesting to talk about in and of itself. So the gender roles that men have um, are not talked about and are really damaging, I think. You know, to talk about the fact that young men are five times more likely, uh, men are five times more likely to commit suicide than women. Um, I think because, because we're expected to hold all our emotions in and not seek help for anything. Um, now, we don't talk about that because that's, we just assume that's how men are. But I, I, I disagree. Historically, men have not. Men have been very different, and cross-culturally, men are very different. Right. So let's talk about gender in a way that sort of enables men to challenge those cultural norms and challenge, you know, women to challenge those cultural norms and and gender turn gender into what is empowering as opposed to what is limiting. Okay, so that's that's the second. You do you have workshops on pornography, relatively uncontroversial. Uh-huh. On gender, very controversial. Uh-huh. What's the third one? Um, I, those are the two that I run through Two Birds, One Bee. Okay. Um, I also personally um, volunteer for a consent education program that is run sort of by NAPCAN, mm-hmm. um, which is an, another organization nationally coordinated. And consent, the, the reason I don't have a consent program within Two Birds, One Bee is because there exists consent programs, um, which I think are very good. Oh, so, interesting. So Love Bites is the, is the program I volunteer for. Um, it talks about consent, sexual assault, domestic violence. Um, and I would, instead of sort of adding something to the market, you know, have something that already exists and, and proven to work. And, and I would love to just see that implemented in all schools. Okay, what's, what's that like? So that's, it is, um, I mean, I, I think it is so important. It takes young people, th- there's, two, there's two sessions throughout the day, or three sessions throughout the day for that one. There is the sexual assault session, which is the one I run. Mm-hmm. There is the relationship violence, um, which a lot of people think of as domestic violence. Um, and then the third session is sort of a creative session where new young people can sort of um, turn what they've heard in the workshops and discussed into some piece of creative material. Okay, so you um, run the sexual assault one? So I run the sexual assault one where we talk about um, myths around, sex, uh, around sexual assault. Um, so talking about you know, are women more likely to be sexually assaulted depending on what they wear? And the answer is surprisingly is, is no. Um, most, most young people sort of think, oh, absolutely. You know, if a woman is wearing less clothing, she's more likely to get sexually assaulted. But as we know, sexual assault happens in communities in which 
you know, religious, religious women who are fully covered, um, women in the army who are fully covered. Mm. Um, all these communities have sexual assaults um, and there are some, um, some really interesting studies around men who do commit sexual assault and um, interviewing them and, and most of them don't remember what their victims were wearing. Um, most, most of them, um, given, you know, the, given simulated tests, will target women who walk less confidently than those who walk confidently but are wearing less. Really? So, so walking confidently is the factor? Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's a, a number of factors, but right. ease of, perceived ease of sexual assault is, 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 is uh, by this one study, perceived to be the, okay. the main factor. So this is, in the, this is in the realm of like what you might call like a violent sexual assault. Yeah. What, I, I know that this is a big, the big thing coming up is sexual assault within, within what might start as a consensual relationship? Sure, yeah. So what's, what's, um, what, do you, what tools do you give young people for dealing with that sort of situation? How do young people navigate that? Mm, um, really good question. So to back you up, 80 to 90% of sexual assaults happen between two people who know each other. Um, the idea of a stranger in a back alley is a great media sensation, but not actually reflected. Uh, a lot of that is, a lot of that is partner, um, partner sexual assault, um, or a lot of that is a friend, you know, at a party, or um, uh, I mean, a lot. Sadly, a lot of that is is a teacher or a, a priest or a, a coach or someone who's taken advantage of a position of power. So the first thing to talk about is is how sexual assaults actually happen, um, so that if it happens to a young person, they don't feel like they're outside the norm, because that stops a lot of people from talking about it. Mm-hmm. So we go through those myths um, and then establish what consent looks like. So we go through all these scenarios of, of relationships and, and we're sort of on the edge and, you know, is this consent? Is this not consent? Has consent been sought? Has it been given? What does it look like? Because, um, I mean, there was a great movement of, a, you know, no means no, this great sort of consent movement of the, so I suppose the late 20th century, no means no, um, which is, again, a little outdated because you can say no, you can be silent and yet that is not consent. Mm-hmm. So, so only yes means yes is sort of the new catchphrase. Only yes um, means yes only is the yes new no means no. Yeah. Okay. Because you can still, I mean, most, I think about 40% of um, sexual assault victims freeze up during the act. So um, a lot of people might think, you know, if, if, if they didn't run away, if they didn't try and fight, you know, surely they, surely they've consented to some degree. Well, you know, no, in 40% of cases, that's just a very natural instinct is to freeze up and, and, and not, not struggle as much as possible. Okay, so, so like a cut and paste, really simple stripped down system for young people, what, what would that look like? Um, firstly, make sure that someone is capable of consent. Um, so, you know, young people, not, drunk. Not, not overly drunk, not, uh, not intoxicated in any other way. Um, um, I suppose, secondly, getting an enthusiastic yes around, around a range of things. So, for example, an initial, initial yes does not leave a, a carte blanche. There's not sort of this blank check around what, what initial consent can, can be. Um, and consent can change. You know, it might be that you're, that you're halfway through, through intercourse and then suddenly one of the partners is, is no longer feeling it. 
you know, and, and importantly, being being able to sort of acknowledge when someone is no longer being able, is no longer feeling it, or, or wanting to slow down, or whatever it is, um, leaving all of these options open, um, but really emphasizing the importance of verbal enthusiastic consent. Um, and I suppose not prescribing too heavily because uh, consent can be really sexy and should be really sexy. Um, so to try and have like a textbook consent is, is, is perhaps off-putting for a lot of young people. Mm -hmm. But giving different options of what they might look like um, so that young people can practice that and recognize it. Um, okay, so what, what, what are different options of what that could be? Um, yes, yes, please. Um, uh, you know, can I, can I touch you here? Like, you know, can we... Uh, particularly the first time, really, really asking those verbal questions. Um, you know, how far are you comfortable going? You know, are you enjoying this? Um, you, know, um, you know, like, you know, what would you like to do? You know, what are you comfortable with? Uh, all those kind of questions are, are, for me, the sort of, that is the top grade of, of consent. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of young people think that's totally foreign and, and you know, that's impossible. And... Um, and my advice is if, you, if you're not comfortable talking about sex, you probably shouldn't be having it because those conversations can't happen. So if a young person is in a relationship and they want to have sex but they don't feel comfortable talking about it, for me that raises red flags about what could be misunderstood in that situation. And what they should be doing in that case is going through some PowerPoint slides. <laughs> exactly, time. being able to say penis and vagina. Um, and, and having conversations before and after with their partner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think like a lot of this stuff is um, uh, is stuff you pick up. Like it's hard to talk about in the abstract mm. and and be like, but of course there are exceptions. But this is a thing. So are there any are there any um, uh, cut and dried, really simple, bright lines that you can give young people? Yeah. So I suppose the simplest one is if you don't hear a yes, stop. If you don't hear a yes, stop. if you don't hear a yes, stop. Um, and if, you know, like, not to get technical, if there's a yeah, then fantastic. If there's a, an enthusiastic <laughs> nod. I didn't really. hear yes. Yeah, you, know, you, don't need a, you don't need to write up a contract. Um, right. If there's no enthusiastic affirmation of consent, stop. Check in. It is always worth erring on the side of checking in. Um, before sort of, you know, um, taking things in a direction where it can go from really pleasurable to actually really damaging. The stakes here can be really high. Um, mm. So it's always worth erring on the side of caution, particularly in the first few um, you know, months or, or even years of a relationship. If you've had a relationship for you know, decades, then there's a different understanding of, of the relationship that evolves through that. Right. So we're talking here about sort of very you know, teenage relationships, basically. And for a lot of people, this is their, their first time. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Everyone's figuring it out at the same time. Yeah. What, what's the, what does the state of play look like for that, like in the what, in the porn saturated age? Is that, is that a big part of how they are acting with each other? Oh man, yeah, absolutely. So young people are learning about what sex looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like from porn scenes, essentially. Um, in porn scenes, um, there is great diversity. So on the one end, you have every feminist porn, which surprises a lot of people. Um, but on the other hand, um, is you have you know very extreme things, um, and the mainstream is very much on the more extreme what, side. What what's feminist porn? Feminist porn is often written, directed, produced by female pornographers, 
um, with a strong emphasis on consent, with sort of the emotional side of a relationship, um, with, with making sure that there is gender equality represented in the scenes that are happening. Often those are sort of produced by small pornographers and are behind paywalls. So they have to be sort of sought for mm-hmm. um, and young people probably aren't going to access them. You're probably not going to pay for porn. I mean, the analogy I use is we, we force our young people in New South Wales to do 120 hours of driving before we let them drive on their own. Right? L plays, you have to do 120 hours of driving because, you know, people have played Mario Kart and Grand Theft Auto and, you know, all sorts of car racing games and there's bad influences of car racing games, but we force them to do 120 hours so that they really know what driving looks like. When it comes to sex, they may be watching, you know, thousands of hours of porn, but there is no com- competition for that. There is no, there's, we don't sit them down and be like, this is so, what consent so, looks like. So- it might go better if, if uh, the parents were present for the first 120 hours of sex. Uh, I mean, I mean, um, I would. No, never you're going too fast. That. You're going to kill us all. <laughs> um, look, that that raises a lot of red flags in, in other ways <laughs> for me. But I think you can before getting into the bedroom, perhaps mm-hmm. in the living room, you can have a conversation, um, at least one conversation. But certainly, in terms of you know, you can. Um, you can talk about these things um, before they happen. Right. Yeah. Do you have Do you have a, a, a essential? Uh, I mean, we've talked about a lot of different things. Do you have like a central cohesive idea of what a a healthier, a sexually healthier society would look like? Yeah, for sure. So there are. For me, for me, the gender role of sex is really messed up. So you've got two things happening. One is that women, um, the, mes- the strong message from pornography and from most mainstream media is that women are there for male sexual pleasure. Um, I mean, it's easy, like within pornography, it's the most extreme, but elsewhere, you know, advertising, as I've said. Mm-hmm. Um, women are there for, for heterosexual male pleasure, really. Um, and so they're treated that way, um, often in, in really messed up settings. Um, so there was a study done on the, the most popular porn videos at, at a given time. And I think it was, I think it was 80 to 90% of them had violence within them perpetrated by men against women. Oh. That was the norm. That's, that is the mainstream pornography, which most young people would, the first thing you can click on will most likely have acts of violence. Um, whether, I mean, that could be verbal violence uh, or physical violence, but whatever it is, it is, it is men treating women like lesser um, and, and, and in ways that are, are really damaging. And so they're then taking that into their bedrooms. So you have, um, there's really strong trends of young men asking their partners, their female young partners, to do things that they see. They're trying to play out the porn scenes in, mm. in the bedroom because that's what they know of. That's what they think is really sexy because the actresses in porn, of course, you know, pretending to love it. Um, even, even in sort of really graphic sort of rape scenes, you know, like there's, there's this emphasis that young women enjoy being there for male pleasure. So that's the one side of things. I think that could be much healthier if, you know, women's sexuality is accepted. You know, young women have libidos. Young women have the equal libidos to young men. Um, I mean, give or take some percentage, um, but there's totally denied 
you know, this, this idea that young women have sexual pleasure, sexual desires, and should be sexual partners equally with young men um, in heterosexual relationships. That is a really important message that I think is missed across all media. You know, there's, there's very few um, relationships on screen, either on porn or elsewhere, in which there's an equal sexual relationship. Um, the other thing that's really messed up, and as a young man, I'm most passionate about this, is masculinity in terms of sex. So what is most sexy, if you've, if you've watched porn, what you probably consider most sexy is a violent, dominating man. Um, and that's kind of what a lot of young men think they have to replicate. Um, it, is, it is someone who is sort of metaphorically always on top, always in command, um, is for their pleasure. That is sort of the expectations that young men have. They have gargantuan penises. Um, they have, you know, they can last for hours and hours and hours um, before ejaculating. They, you know, this is a superhuman um, figure that is impossible to emulate. Um, and when people try and emulate it, it's often, you know, ends up in real life violence, um, whether that is, is sort of verbal violence or, or as far as real physical um very damaging violence. I mean, all, all violence is damaging, but you know, particularly damaging violence. Um, for me, that is a huge conversation that does not exist. Um, we need to be talking to young men and saying, hey, those guys you're seeing, they're putting an act on. You know, the, firstly, their physical bodies are not the average. Let's talk about real penis sizes here for a second. Um, but then also that those men are putting on an act, those, those men probably, you know, have wives they probably have girlfriends who they don't treat in those ways they probably have boyfriends they don't treat in those ways i mean those those that that idea of masculinity in sex is um is pervasive and and really awful wow conversations that need to be had conversations that i think are desperately desperately need to be had from an early age really um, mm -hmm. and you can scale those conversations back so there are consent programs for for preschoolers in which sex is not even near the agenda it's just consent in terms of like, um, there was a really cute video that popped up on my Facebook feed um, where there was a plush toy octopus. And so it's going around the circle of preschoolers and sort of, can Mr. Octopus give you a hug? And they were sort of given the opportunity to say yes or no. And that if we can teach consent from the age of, of you know, six, then, then that conversation is so much easier to have when they're eight and then when they're 12 and then when they're 16 and, and when they're in relationships. So all of these conversations can be scaled to whatever age group you're talking to. Start young, start the conversation. Start the conversation, open it up, yeah. Matt Friedman, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure, thank you for having me. Aaron Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.